I was really surprised to know that our temperatures are 13, 15 degrees warmer than neighborhoods just a few miles from us. I never realized that. And, and mainly because of uh, shade, uh, tree shade that uh, is higher percentage wise in those neighborhoods compared to our neighborhood. One of the other things we learned, I learned, was that we can have an impact, even though we may not be part of a government agency or a um, large corporation as individuals, as residents, we can have an impact. We all can learn from this experience and, and see how we can empower ourselves, empower our neighbors, neighborhoods to make changes uh, to improve the quality of life for our families. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Vitalist Spark podcast. You just heard from Silberio, a past participant in the Nature Conservancy's Urban Heat Leadership Academy. On today's episode, we're talking to Anna Bettis, who's the Arizona Healthy Cities Program Director at the Nature Conservancy. We're talking to her about the Conservancy's 2017 Innovation Grant, which is the predecessor to Vitalist Systems Change Grants. The grant was provided so the Nature Conservancy and partners could work with communities and create heat action planning guides, which identified strategies to reduce heat and improve the ability of residents to deal with that heat. Anna will tell us what this project has evolved to, what it takes to create system change, and how it's always a moving target. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you. First thing we always do on the podcast is have our guests introduce themselves. So tell us about you, your work at the Nature Conservancy, and how you got to do the work that you're doing now. Sure. As you said, I'm the director of the Healthy Cities Program at the Nature Conservancy, and I've been doing that work for about four years now. This work is really close to my heart. I got two degrees in sustainability from Arizona State University. So being able to really work at that intersection, people and nature is really a privilege. And yeah, the work that we've been doing the last couple of years was really made possible by the foundation that was laid by that innovation grant that we received from Vitalist. So happy to talk more about that today. For those of those in the audience who may not know, can you tell us a little bit about the background of the Nature Conservancy and its work and its current priorities? Sure. So if folks are not familiar with the Nature Conservancy, we are the largest conservation organization in the world. We operate in 72 countries, all 50 states, and people are usually most familiar with us for our work to conserve ecologically significant land. And that's work that we continue to do. But about 10 years ago, we took a step back and we said, you know what, as this large conservation organization, if we really want to have an impact on the big challenges facing people in nature, we should look at cities and how we can actually bring nature into cities to help solve some of those challenges. So that looks different depending on what the local context is. But here in Greater Phoenix, being in the hottest large metro area in the country, heat, of course, is a huge issue for people living in this community. And so that's been the real focus of our Healthy Cities program, which our geographic scope is the Greater Phoenix area. So yeah, we started that close to 10 years ago, not quite, but. Thank you for that background, Anna. Let's drive into this 2017 innovation grant, which to some might seem like a lifetime ago, but that grant was meant to give the Nature Conservancy and partners a space to convene and really help plan the heat action planning guide for neighborhoods in Greater Phoenix. How did that work come about? What were the partners involved? Ultimately, what ended up happening with that planning guide? What came of it? 
So that project involved quite a number of different partners. It involved three community-based organizations. That includes Phoenix Revitalization Corporation, Puente Movement, and Rail Mesa. It also included Arizona State University, Maricopa County Department of Public Health, Central Arizona Conservation Alliance, and the Center for Whole Communities. And then, of course, the Nature Conservancy convened the partners together. That was my understanding is actually started as a conversation with my predecessor from the Nature Conservancy. Her name is Maggie Messerschmidt and one of our CBO partners about some research that was being done that showed that one of the neighborhoods that they were working in was among the hottest in the city. And really, we were thinking about how people who are most affected by the problem often have the best ideas about solutions to that problem. And we're seeing a need for how to really approach that. And so, yeah, bringing those partners together to develop a couple of things. One is there's plans for these three neighborhoods that are among the hottest, Lindo Park, Rosalie Park, the Mesa Care neighborhood, and Edison Eastlake. Two of those are in Phoenix and one is in Mesa. So there's plans that were developed that note what community residents wanted to see in their neighborhoods. So we asked them a few things. We asked them about the cooling assets in their neighborhoods, but then we also asked them about where were the hot spots where they experienced difficulty with heat while moving through their neighborhood and what their visions were for the neighborhoods. And they were different across the three neighborhoods. Communities are diverse and what they want to see is diverse as well. And then there's actually this guide that includes those plans, but provides guidance on how other groups can carry out similar community-centered heat action planning processes. And so we have seen groups take that up and use that to carry out similar processes, which we've been really excited about. And those plans continue to live on today. So I'll give some examples of how the heat action planning guide continues to inform work here in the Valley one is informing future development. So something that we really wanted to see was residents take ownership of the plans that were developed for their communities. And we saw that there's a group of residents that worked with city developers to provide input on some housing that was being put in. We've seen residents with one of the parks that was being designed say, look, these are the features that we want to be included in this park related to heat mitigation. So they wanted an operable splash pad and they wanted shade structures. So that's one example. Another is just prioritizing on the ground projects. So I know for the Nature Conservancy, anytime that we're going to do an on the ground project in one of these communities, we always go back to those plans to say, what did people say they wanted to see? So for each of those three neighborhoods, we have put in on the ground projects. Because that was another important piece was not just asking about what people want, but making sure there's some real on the ground change because so often people are asked to share their experiences without actually seeing that change on the ground. Another example is setting local government priority. So it's really exciting to see that the city of Phoenix has the first publicly funded Office of Heat Response and Mitigation. And I saw in a Grist article recently where they talked about how that office is using this guide to inform how they're building out their work and what their work is going to look like. So we're seeing it used in that capacity. There's also been an academic publication that a number of different 
individuals who are involved in that project put out. This can really serve as a model for community-driven heat adaptation planning for other neighborhoods facing increasing heat, so sharing that out in that regard. And then similarly, this was held up by the EPA as an example of equity in action. There was a webinar that a number of partners worked on showcasing this approach to share it out with other communities across the country. And then we've seen, I mentioned other groups carrying out similar processes. So one example is the West Mesa River Community Action Project that cited that they were using the heat action planning methodology. So really excited to see how that's lived on. And then for us, one of the ways that it lives on in our work is that we heard in that process that residents wanted additional training on how to educate decision makers on how extreme heat is affecting them and how they can make improvements in their neighborhoods. And so because of that, we developed a program called the Urban Heat Leadership Academy, which is now in its third cohort and is really aimed at addressing that thing that we heard from people through the heat action planning process. It is a five-month-long capacity building program. It's offered in Spanish and in English, and it's aimed at ensuring people have the knowledge, resources, and skills to advocate for solutions and implement solutions to rising temperatures in their neighborhood. So yeah, we're really excited to see you know how this has evolved and it just, yeah, it continues to inform our work. It was a big catalyst for a lot of work in the Valley. I think if you look at where things are at with heat work in greater Phoenix before the heat action planning process, the Nature's Cooling Systems Partnership, and then where we're at now, I think it's informed so many different organizations and not just even those involved here. So yeah. That's great. Thank you for all that information and feedback. First of all, it's great to hear that you weren't just, I think oftentimes for so many communities that are facing the largest health disparities, they're just surveyed and interviewed and put through the ringer, if you will. And then they're like, you've been here 15 times asking me the same questions. So it's great to see that you guys are actually using that work and referring back to it in terms of action. So that's awesome to hear. You also mentioned some of the communities. So that's really cool to see. Are there any across the state that are replicating this? Because I think that might be cool to see if there's any other communities across the state that are also doing this. I do know that when it comes to the Urban Heat Leadership Academy, that idea that kind of came out of that process, I have had in- inquiries from both the city of Tucson and the city of Los Angeles, where they wanted to learn about how we are engaging with frontline communities, those impacted first and worst by the impacts of climate change on how to adapt their communities to those impacts. And so I think there are a lot of communities that are looking at being Phoenix being the hottest large metro area, like I mentioned, how are we dealing with it and how are we engaging with people who are affected by it and not just sort of parachuting in and thinking we already have all the answers, but really partnering with the people who are living in those communities who know what's going to work in their neighborhoods. That's great. And then you mentioned that EPA webinar. So if you could share that with us, with our audience. Yeah, definitely. As we continue to hear from all of our partners who are engaged in systems change, systems change is a long game. It's not just, hey, we got a systems change grant for three years. We're going to make this happen in three years. It's a moving target. So from your predecessor or from what you've heard from some of the partners that were involved in this innovation grant. 
what were some of the obstacles during the innovation implementation? That's something that we're always curious about. Yeah, things never go exactly as planned, right? When you you go from planning something to implementing. Yeah, I've been chatting with some of our partners about this. And one obstacle that we talked about, our original plan was holding workshops and asking people how they felt about the heat and what they wanted to see in their neighborhoods and kind of jumping right into that. One of our CBO partners told us, that is just not going to work. These questions you're asking are not phrased in the way that people are going to connect to in the community. You're going to need to start out with some more education on the front end before we jump right into these workshops. So there can be kind of that disconnect between the way that we talk in academia or scientists talk and the way that just an everyday person talks. And so that was one of the many values of having our community-based organization partners who have been working in these communities for a long time and have those trusted relationships, they could help ensure that what we're doing is going to make sense with the audiences we're trying to reach. And so we kind of went back and needed to rethink what that would look like. And we decided to add two educational workshops on the front end of those, just to kind of get everybody using the same language and understanding the issue in the same way before we asked for that input. So yeah, that was one of the obstacles And then in the theme of obstacles, when we went on to do the Urban Heat Leadership Academy, an obstacle we had there was we were a couple of days away from launching the program when everything started to hit home with the pandemic. So we were down to having the candies on the tables and everything ready to go. It was going to be an in-person program and needed to just halt that because we weren't sure what was going to happen with the pandemic. And so needing to take a step back and then ask our funder at that time, can we pivot this to redesign it and do it in a virtual setting? Because it's it doesn't look like anytime soon we're going to be able to gather a bunch of people in person. And so we had to totally redesign that program. That was definitely an obstacle on that front from the Urban Heat Leadership Academy. But I think now we have more of a scalable model that we can reach more people. Uh, People can do things at their own pace. And so there were some benefits that came from that. Lots of learning. So yeah, any grant, you're going to have to be adaptable, right? And I think that's one of the things that we try to really let our partners know that just because you told us at the beginning of an application that this was the way it's going to happen, we're flexible. We know that things change. We know that priorities shift or capacity shifts as well. So I think we, as, as most funders, are moving to this more trust-based philanthropy model where we say, you know what, you're the expert on this. We're going to trust that you know what you're doing best. So let's just let our resources be used by you so that the work that you're working on isn't impeded by our guidelines or what have you. So that's really cool to see that you guys were able to do that with the Urban Heat Leadership Academy. So the Urban Heat Leadership Academy was kind of the evolution of that planning guide. Walk me through the Urban Heat Leadership Academy. You said it's a five-month program. So you're in your, what, fourth cohort, you said? Third cohort. So how many alumni do you have? And what are some of the things that they get to do when they're in that program? So I guess starting off just with what the program is all about, we start off with talking about the challenge of urban heat, but we also talk about how that intersects with water and air quality and use a lens of environmental justice and equity 
And then we talk about solutions to rising temperatures. So as a conservation organization, we're very interested in nature-based solutions. So that's covered, but we also cover built environment solutions, changes we can make to our built environment to help people stay cool and behavior changes that people can make to stay safe during the heat. We worked with the Maricopa County Department of Public Health on a, a session on that. And then we go into the skills and tools that people will need to influence change. So how do you tell a compelling story? How do you do good advocacy? How do you do community engagement? And so we wanted to ensure that this was something that was really actionable and could mobilize people. Uh, We conclude with taking action kind of module. And then everyone who graduates from the program is eligible to apply for funding and mentorships to carry out projects based on what they've learned in the program. Again, wanting to ensure that we're seeing that real world implementation. And so we have now had 80 people go through the Urban Heat Leadership Academy, and they are doing a lot of exciting things. Some examples include implementing greening projects in gathering spaces, such as schools and parks and along sidewalks where people are walking. We've had groups open cooling centers in places where there were formerly not cooling centers. Cooling centers, for people who aren't familiar, are just places that you can go to stay cool during the hotter parts of the day. They often offer water or other resources. And then we also have groups who are advocating for more investment in heat mitigation in their communities. So something we've tried to be really clear about with the program is not being prescriptive about what the solutions need to look like. We just provide the information. And then we want to have the residents be able to say, this is what's going to work in my neighborhood. This is what's important to me. And just really kind of fostering that leadership of people who've gone through the program. So yeah, we're really proud to see that folks are spending their time and energy to improve the livability in their neighborhoods and try to uplift those stories as often as we can. So you really walk them through the entire process and give them a set of tools that they can use. What have been some of the success stories that you've heard from Leadership Academy graduates? We had one group. There was a a woman named Rosalind Gordon. Rosalind, before she joined the program, said that she had observed a lot more firemen at bus stops helping with people who had heat illnesses. And it really tugged on her heartstrings. And she wanted to get involved in helping solve this issue that she was seeing getting worse and worse in her neighborhood, seeing that firsthand, she was able to reach out to her local church and work with some other graduates and kind of a team together. And that was one example of a group that was, that opened a cooling center. So this was a a place in South Phoenix. And it was my understanding, the only cooling center that you could bring a dog to, which I thought was pretty cool. At least the only one in that area. We also had a team that put in trees along the sidewalks at Capitol Elementary School. So a number of graduates came together to team up and put that in. And they also included rainwater harvesting. So one of the things that we cover in the Urban Heat Leadership Academy is what are some solutions that can really balance the trade-offs that we have around heat and water because we're in a desert, but it's also very hot. And so it's been really cool to see people pull those things together in the projects that they are putting forward. So yeah, so a lot of the projects have put in 
rainwater harvesting features along with the trees that have been put in. There was some, there was a team that put in trees at Grant Park Community Garden, adding some shade and vegetation there. So I think those are all success stories. There's some work that's ongoing right now that I hope will be successful. There's a group that's trying to influence the city on their curb cutting permitting process. So curb cuts can allow for people to pull in water off the street to then water their vegetation. And right now, it's quite a complicated process to get a permit for that. And so it's cool to see there's the on the ground projects, there's people who are advocating for some of those bigger changes to happen at kind of the city level. And there's a place for everyone in this work to mitigate heat in communities. So We're really proud of everybody who's gone through the program. Let's say you're in a community up in northern Arizona or you're in Yuma or all across the state and you want to work with your community to improve the conditions for others who are impacted by heat. How can you connect with the Nature Conservancy and either get support or become part of a program that's already happening in your community? We do have a number of resources that are available to anyone. So the heat action planning guide is one that is available on our website for anybody to take that up and maybe apply a similar model elsewhere. We have also made available, there's a series of animated educational videos that we made as part of the Urban Heat Leadership Academy that are in Spanish and English. And we have a YouTube channel that those are available on. So anybody can access those and use them however they would like to. I know some of our partners have used pieces of that and work that they're doing and that we love that. So that would be a way to connect our Healthy Cities program at this point. Our geographic scope is the greater Phoenix area. So we don't have any projects that are actually outside of that geography, but certainly we have resources that we're happy to share. I would be happy to jump on a call and share any lessons learned or maybe a contractor we worked with. If you wanna build something similar, like anything we can do to share, I'm available, my team's available, so yeah. I'm just thinking like five years ago, I had to go down to Yuma for my previous job and it was only a hundred degrees. And that hundred degrees in Yuma felt like 120 here in Phoenix, which I just, I could not understand why it was happening. And it was, well, there's no shade anywhere. There's a lack of trees and there's not any tall structures to provide any shade. So yeah, uh, (laughs) I would recommend for people who are looking to take action that they look to what community-based organizations or nonprofits are in that space. That's something that we cover in the Urban Heat Leadership Academy and that skills and tools for influencing change module that we have is not going it alone. Oftentimes there there is an organization that may have resources or meeting space or things that can help support you in whatever project that you'd like to see happen in your neighborhood. You know, right now there's a lot of federal funding available to do climate adaptation work. So I would look to see if there's groups who are trying to tap into that and see how you could be involved. Because I think people don't always realize that community members are a key partner in implementing change. They have knowledge about what will work in their neighborhoods. That's so critical to those nonprofits being successful in implementing those projects. 
So yeah, I would look to see what's happening near you. And as you mentioned, those federal resources, I just think of, especially for rural communities, just want to remind everyone that Local First has the Economic Recovery Center, which can provide not only technical assistance, but help organizations write grants up to three times a year. So if there's organizations across the state that are interested in doing this, don't forget that resource is available in case that process can be overwhelming. So it's really something to not forget. So just wanted to put that plug in there for them. What advice do you have for coalitions or organizations that are looking to work on large scale systems change? Well, a couple of things. One, I think that this work really moves at the speed of trust. And so taking the time to develop the relationships with the various organizations that you're going to need to work with to implement this change, I think that's critical. And then I think another piece is just when you're thinking about what the work will be, kind of digging into not just the symptoms of the issue, but kind of asking those why questions and what is holding the problem in place. So just to give an example with our work, when we were looking at these huge disparities that we're seeing with heat, with some neighborhoods as little as two miles apart, having a 13 degree difference in temperature, we wanted to think about, well, why do we have that? Why is there so many places that are hotter with low tree canopy? And those are the places that have lower incomes. And the things that we heard when we convened partners about this is that historically, these are places that have been disinvested in. And they're places that people have not been included in decision making about what happens in their neighborhoods. So I guess advice I would have when you're trying to think about what the work will look like, also engaging with those partners and you're one organization and you see one slice of the issue, but I think there's strength in being able to bring in diverse partners to really understand what are the levers that we can use to address this issue moving forward at a big scale. Great. Thank you, Anna. Now, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything else you want to plug in that you're working on or looking for partners on something, here's your shot to see if if there's potential out there. Yeah. So for the Healthy Cities program at the Nature Conservancy, a big focus of ours is increasing tree canopy cover in the communities that are the hottest. And so one of the things that we'd like to do in that space is one, increase public investment in these neighborhoods And then also we want to make it easier in communities to implement green stormwater infrastructure. So being able to put in basins that can capture the rain when it falls. So yeah, we're definitely looking for partners on all the work that we do is in partnership with other organizations. So if that's something you're working on in the greater Phoenix area, I would love to chat with you and think about how we can work together. Great. I think one other thing that I would mention is we just completed something called a heat story map. We're calling it changing the story of heat in Phoenix together, where if you're not familiar with these issues that I've been talking about related to heat disparities and things that we can do, it's just meant as an educational resource. It has some videos from community residents and some resources on solutions. So if we could share that with the audience too, just as a way to get educated on this issue, I think that would be great. Definitely. We can definitely do that. Well, Anna, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vitalist Spark podcast. We'll be on the lookout for 
all of the graduates and their work. That sounds great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.